Shine 1049. I'm Darren Potzer. Evening encouragement, listener supported, commercial free contemporary Christian radio for Spokane and Coeur d'Alene. I have a special guest in studio with me, Carl Wilkins. Welcome. He's got an amazing testimony and he's very humble, but he was literally the only American that stayed behind in Rwanda during the genocide. You maybe remember the genocide that occurred in ah, 1994, so it's been nearly 30 years now. Carl was the one American aid worker that stayed behind. Welcome, Carl. Thanks. Good to be with you. You've got a ministry today called World Outside My Shoes, but why don't you take us back, first of all, to what was happening that first afternoon in 1994? In the spring of 1994, we actually moved to Rwanda in the spring of 1990 with our three small children doing development work, building schools, working with ADRA, Advanced Development Relief Agency. And those four years leading up to what's now known known as the 1994 genocide against the Tutsi, were in many ways great, great years for our kids. They enjoy growing up in the neighborhood there, really rewarding work. Although it's funny how we can adapt, huh? Because at that same time, war actually had started six months after we got there in 90. So when 94 came, we were kind of on a, a wave, at least we hoped we were on a wave about peace. After this three years of war, we had what we thought was negotiated peace, but there was a small group of people, men, women, politicians, business people, who were just not at all interested in sharing power. Sounds too familiar, but they're the group that's behind this. You know, this genocide is not a natural disaster. This is, it, it, people don't naturally want to kill their neighbors. I know that sounds kind of obvious or maybe a little bit ludicrous, but, but the genocide, people had to work hard to break the bonds that held that, that country together. Even though there were a couple ethnic groups, they married each other, they went to church together. Shoot, 80% of the people were in church every weekend. So it's pretty crazy to think uh, this big picture of, of more than a million people being killed often by their neighbor in a little country of 7 million, and that it happened within the context of 80% of them going to church. Unbelievable. So we're going to hear more with Carl this evening and his fascinating story about what happened in Rwanda as the only American that stayed behind through the entire three-month ordeal in just a few moments. You're listening to Spokane's Shine 1049. Have a special guest in studio from a ministry called World Outside My Shoes. Is that right, Carl? You got it right. I, I thought it was a good idea when I, my wife and I picked that name because it was descriptive of kind of, you know, like walking in someone else's shoes. We actually work a lot with teachers who teach about Holocaust and genocide. Because we were in Rwanda during that horrible time, we bring those firsthand experiences, we bring those stories into the classroom. So Carl was just sharing with us a moment ago, if you just tuned in, about the early stages of what happened in Rwanda. He was an aid worker living in Rwanda with his family, three young children, at the time of 1994. And that summer, basically a genocide broke out in the country. Just share with us, first of all, how is Rwanda different than what we see outside our windows each day here in Spokane and the Inland Empire of the Northwest? <laughs> um, green, 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 and we see a lot of that. So mountains, hmm, and we see a lot of mountains. It's a really rolling, uh, beautiful, lush country, about a mile high in elevation at the capital city, growing 
green stuff year round uh, near the equator. But because it's high, it's not hot. It's really a gorgeous little spot in the center of Africa. And so you're a missionary there. The first few moments of when this genocide started to break out, describe for us what that was like. The evening of April 6, 1994, I was down in the office with my mom and dad who were over. Dad was volunteering for three months and the electricity went off. And I'm like, oh, shoot, that's not unusual. Let's go home because I think the kids are by themselves. We got home. There was electricity. And it just looked like a regular evening. But after dinner, we heard this massive explosion. And, you know, I say massive. We, even though we had peace, there was still lots of level of unrest. And you'd hear a grenade or you'd hear occasional gunfire. So it's crazy how we can adapt to that. But this big explosion turned out to be the president's plane being shot down. And the planners of this genocide used that event to launch this extermination campaign. You know, they'd been, they'd been broadcasting this message that we're under attack and there's not enough. You know, scarcity and we're under attack. Scarcity, we're under, and that changes the pathways in our brain. It changes the way we think and we get on edge. And, and this is what they're going to build on in their efforts to hang on to political power. That, that's the big picture. But when you zoom back down to our home, that's Wednesday night. We're putting the kids to bed in the hallway because because we basically want as many brick walls between them and the bullets that had started flying outside. Thursday, the American embassy is saying, stay here, Don't, uh, st- we're, we're not gonna evacuate. Without getting into all those details, they are going to the American embassy the next day, Friday, we'll say, nope, we're all leaving. Everybody, ambassador and everybody, but don't bring any Rwandans. We're gonna drive out, president's plane was shot down, we don't wanna fly out, we'll drive out, but don't bring any Rwandans. We don't care what ethnic group. I mean, the majority was targeting the minority. The minority were the ones who were being blamed, called Tutsi. And our problem in the house, Darren, was that we had this young lady who lived and worked in our house that loved on our kids, and, and we loved her. And we're like, wait, how are we going to leave her here? She's part of the minority group. She'll probably get killed. So the U.S. government was basically saying all Everyone patriots out, out going to do a caravan. And now you're faced with this moral dilemma. This is Carl Wilkins. And we're going to hear more of his incredible firsthand testimony of being the lone American that spent the three months in Rwanda the entire time during the genocide back in 1994. Coming up on Shine 104.9. Carl Wilkins, kind of a Spokane celebrity here. Many people maybe haven't heard Carl's story. He's with a ministry called World Outside My Shoes, and he was the lone American that stayed throughout the entire genocide. So, Carl, catch us up now. You were in Rwanda involved in this genocide back in 1994. You know, we always are trying to divide ourselves. We have an in-group and an out-group and majority and minority. And Rwanda had their majority Hutu and their minority Tutsi. But for day-to-day life, people just live together. When you speak the same language, you work together, you have these shared experiences, you fall in love, you get married. It wasn't a big deal for most people. But when we're looking to divide, it doesn't take a big deal to divide often. It takes some fear and and it takes a sense of um, uncertainty that's there. And so a, a small group of the majority 
were looking to, to hang on to political power, and they created a narrative that really painted the minority as the enemy and the threat. And the young lady who lived in our, worked in our home was of that minority group. And, you know, it's one thing to say they're a threat, but in Rwanda, it had, it had gone accelerated to the level of extermination. Carl shared a few moments ago that what instigated this genocide was planning, yes, but there was an act where the president of the country's plane was yeah, shot trigger. down. What nationality? Was he from the minority? He was from the, the majority group, but he wasn't of the extremist. And I think, you know, just like when somebody's learning the story of the Holocaust, they might talk about the Germans, but then when they learn more, they talk about the Nazis. And then when they learn more, they find out even not all the Nazis were intent on this extermination campaign. And in Rwanda, this idea of the extremist among the majority is, is one that really needs to be held clear. It would be awesome, Darren, if, if a lot of the other majority uh, members of the majority group would have stood up, whether they were teachers or pastors, influencers in their community, if they would have stood up against genocide. But unfortunately, we don't have many stories like that. It's a story of fear and, and hatred and incredible brutality. U.S. Embassy basically says all patriots out of the country, we're going to get a caravan, we're going to get you out of Rwanda for your own safety. You were faced with a moral dilemma. Continue your story. Yeah, when when the, you know, we're talking over a high-frequency radio with the embassy, and they're saying, okay, you know the assembly points that we've already outlined in the weeks ahead of this. We had plans in place. We were just hoping we wouldn't have to come to this point. When they said, you you know, of course, bring your family, but don't bring Rwandans. Well, our problem was some Rwandans had become like family. When a young lady lives and works in your home and loves on your kids, she's family. And we just couldn't imagine leaving her. Put on top of that, the fact that Rwandans treated foreigners with such respect. I mean, it's a... It's a hospitable culture in and of itself. I mean, wonderful generosity and hospitality. And you ramp that up about 300 times for foreigners. My wife and I thought, wow, maybe we can use this privilege that they've you know, given to us over the years we've been here to help maybe save two people, the young lady and the young man who came in the evening as watchmen who are part of the minority. So the decision that Teresa and I made yeah, my wife, Teresa, wasn't really knowing that, that, you know, this is going to last for more than three months, more than a million people will be killed. It was basically quite certain that the two people in our house would be killed. And we started with that. And, you know, before we even came to that decision on Friday, Thursday night, a gang came to our gate with clubs, machetes, probably guns. We're putting the kids to bed in the hallway. We don't know about this till the morning, but neighbor ladies come and, and stand between this angry mob at our gate and us stand between us arguing, trying to convince them not to come in. And I don't remember all the details, but one I do remember is they said, you can't go in there. Their kids play with our kids. And I think about the four years that our kids were, shoot, they were eating in the neighbor's homes and inviting the neighbor kids in to play Legos and stuff. I think about this power of presence. You know, so many times we look at these things and we try to logically explain them. And there's, there's something that we often leave out, which is this power of presence. Those ladies, I don't think there were any men that night that stood up for us. It was moms and grandmas who said, no, you can't go in there. And we heard that story Friday morning. And then it was Friday evening that Teresa and I made our decision that I would stay and she would take the kids to safety. And, and we thought maybe two weeks max. You can't have people being killed 10,000, 20,000 every day, and the rest of the world does nothing about it. We thought you couldn't have that. 
But of course, it's not going to be over in two or three weeks. It's going to be more than three months. Mm. Talking with ADRA aid worker Carl Wilkins, who was in Rwanda during the genocide. And Carl, where was escape for They convoy? drove south to the little country of Burundi, but then Burundi got too unstable. And many of them just went back here to the States. But Teresa wouldn't, she didn't want to go any farther than she had to. She was really really concerned about losing contact, which I was too. And so she ended up in Nairobi, Kenya for those three months. And every day she made heroic efforts to like get to the American embassy or another place with a shortwave radio. And we were able to talk every day of the genocide. Carl Wilkins and this fascinating story about being firsthand in Rwanda during the genocide back in 1994. He's a Spokane resident with a ministry called World Outside My Shoes. More with him coming up on Shine 104.9. And Carl, we've been hearing some of this amazing story. Okay, so your family just left Rwanda with a convoy of American diplomats, soldiers and others. You had stayed behind. What were you doing during that coming weeks, months? What was it? Yeah, it was actually three months that the killing lasted. For the first three weeks, I was stuck in my house. I couldn't get out of my house. There was a 24-7 curfew. People were literally being killed on the streets in front of our houses. I would be talking on the high-frequency radio we had for our, for our development work. You know, we'd been there for four years building schools and things. And all parts of the country just seemed to be inflamed with this unimaginable level of slaughter. And after three weeks, I remember saying to, I had a pastor and his wife who had accepted to come live in my house with me. They were of the majority group and they could have gone to another part of the country that was safer, but they chose to stay with me. She's going to help us get food and water. Uh, she'll be like the logistics person. She's amazing. And then he was this like strategy. I mean, he was really in charge of finances for the Adventist church in Rwanda, the whole country. But here's was his strategy. He said, okay, Carl, if you want to do something outside the house, you got to build a relationship with the people in power. Now, you have to understand, the, the president was killed, a coup happened, the extremists have taken over the government, so the people in power are orchestrating and carrying out a genocide, the slaughter of more than a million people. And he's basically saying, okay, if you're going to do anything out there you're in that, in that mayhem, you've got to build a relationship with these people in power. And, and so that's what, that's what I'll do. I'll build a relationship with the colonel who's in charge of the city because they're trying to portray it to the rest of the world as a war, not as a genocide. And I'm like, how can I help? He'll direct me to a couple of orphanages. In fact, the largest orphanage that he directed me to there were little graves in the parking lot when we pulled in there because kids were dying from diarrhea. They're the little ones who didn't have enough water to drink or food to eat. And so working with Rwandan colleagues, we started bringing food and water and medicine to three groups of orphanages. In fact, one day when we showed up, we ended up within minutes being surrounded by like 50 guys with machine guns. They were there to slaughter everybody because they knew that there were children of the minority in this orphanage. And while I won't go into all the details, that story will end with me actually asking the bogus prime minister and a secretary that I knew uh, in the colonel's office where I would go told her we're surrounded at this orphanage uh, I don't know if they're already killed but we need help and she tells me to ask the guy literally one of the three guys in charge of the genocide the prime minister and this guy there and this guy stops it I don't I don't think he does it out of any you know 
bigness of heart or anything, but the point is the potential for good is in everyone. You know, the the idea, we know that people are created in the image of God, but we often, I think, it, you forget that this is an unerasable image. You know, we think that it's totally gone and, you know, it's just the demon. And, and I'm like, no, we can never completely erase. And it doesn't mean that people are going to turn around and do wonderful things right away. But if we don't believe that the image of God is there, if we don't believe in the potential for good, we'll never ask for it. And and that was some of the most unexplainable or bizarre stories of this time was people who you never would have expected. The enemy actually doing something for just a moment to save someone's life. Carl Wilkins, the lone American that stayed behind during the three-month genocide in Rwanda when all of the American diplomats, all of the soldiers were pulled out of the country. He made the choice to stay behind to see what he could do to help. Carl, I've heard you say before you had to basically shake the hand of the devil. And what do you mean by that statement in reference to this trying to save the orphans by having to appeal to this commander. The ability to connect and to see people as more than one thing, I found later. I mean, I'm not thinking this back then. I'm a you know, 36-year-old kid basically back then, but I look back at it now. Our ability to see somebody as more than the worst thing they have done or they're in the middle of doing, I think is directly related to our ability to make a difference, our ability to, in this case, save lives. And yeah, I, it's, a, it's a crazy story. So not only were a number of orphans saved throughout these 90 days of genocide, of slaughter throughout this country, through the work that you're able to do, you were having to talk your way through roadblocks where these vigilantes basically were, you know, keeping people from moving throughout the city. Looking at it now from behind, and you have resources on your website that we'll share in a few moments if people want to learn more about the story. I mean, we're just scratching the surface, Carl. What happened to some of these men that were involved in leading the genocide, what was their reward or punishment like this gentleman you just referred to, this general? Well, the colonel I worked with and the prime minister were captured, tried, and, and were imprisoned and are in prison today, which is really interesting because sometimes people would say, you know, how can you work with people who are, who are you know, involved in genocide? And my, my answer is they must and they will be brought to justice, but it may not be today. Today they have power and today we got to find a way to help people in some cases to even try to save their lives. The, the bigger picture in Rwanda, I think, today is what about even the ordinary neighbors who were swinging machetes and killing? What happened to them? And, and how can people actually live together? Is it possible for people to live together with people they failed to kill? And Rwanda found themselves overwhelmed. Their court system, as they're trying to rebuild after the genocide, overwhelmed with more than you know a quarter million people accused of genocide, of multiple crimes during genocide. And they took a really courageous and radical approach to this. It was a restorative approach instead of a punitive approach. They said, we've got to understand the harm that happened, then we've got to make a repair plan. And to understand their harm and make a repair plan, we got to hear everybody's voices. So here's how it played out in practical terms. They developed over the course of about 10 years from 2001 to 2011, community courts 
about 12,000 community courts that were held on the local soccer field in town. Schools closed for the afternoon shops, and the people had picked nine people they trusted in their community to get training as the judges slash facilitators. And Rwanda, ever since the genocide in their new government, in their constitution, they've said a minimum of a third of any decision makers, any policy makers, have to be women. That's why today Rwanda has more women in government than any country in the world by far. Parliament's like more than 60% women. How big is Rwanda in the middle of Africa, just so we have a perspective oh my goodness. here in America? You know, if you went from here in Spokane to Canada, over like Grand Coulee and down that little corner of Washington state, that would be Rwanda. Okay. It's tiny little country. And, and among, in that tiny country, 12,000 community courts. Carl Wilkins again with World Outside My Shoes. He was the lone American that stuck through the genocide in Rwanda. You're listening to Spokane Shine 104.9. Carl, how can trust be rebuilt? And just out of curiosity, was there religion in the country? I mean, how could something like that occur with the influence of Christianity in the country? The planners of the genocide knew they had to get rid of all the UN soldiers that were there, more than 2,500. They had to get rid of the foreigners if they're going to do genocide, but they didn't seem to feel like they had to get rid of the church. In fact, the organized church was used during this horrible time. Its infrastructure, its leadership. When religion prioritizes anything above connecting with God and connecting with our neighbor. And you'll recognize those two points as what, you know, Jesus said, the greatest commandments. And then we start to prioritize anything above those two things. We're on a dangerous, dangerous path at the moment. But in terms of the country, putting the pieces back together, you first need safety and security. People have to know that they can sleep at night and they're not going to be attacked. You're going to have a judicial system reestablished there. And and Rwanda was really intentional about security, anti-corruption, both within the government and in in the business sector. You know, I mean, putting soldiers on every street corner for years to establish a sense of safety. But then, you know, in this pyramid of healing, I I call it a pyramid. Typically, we think that you got to learn what happens. You know who to blame, to punish, and then you have justice and justice at the top of the pyramid. The model in Rwanda is more like we have to understand the harm, not so much to blame, but to know how to repair. And part of that repair is justice. But the top of the pyramid is healing. That's always our priority. We're heading for healing. And the way they were doing that is I, I just alluded to a little bit earlier with these community courts where people could learn the truth. They could learn where their, where their family was buried. But it's so important for healing to know the truth, to begin to accept the horrors that happened. And, and not, you know, you can't just accept it right away. I mean, you know, our initial response is they were innocent. It shouldn't have happened. There was, there was both international community. There were church members. It, this shouldn't have happened. But for the people to begin to accept that it, yeah, it happened, and to begin to heal, they needed these gachachas, what they called them, community courts, where they could learn the story, and then the community was part of deciding, what will we do next? What will the repair plan be? And they sent so many thousands of these people into what they called community service camps, where they were building roads and terracing and stuff, basically reinventing themselves 
You can't pay back for killing, but you were showing people that you're more than that worst thing that you had done. You could be part of the community again. And so that understanding the harm, telling the truth, then having a repair plan set the stage then for people coming back to actually live side by side, in some cases, with people they failed to kill. Carl, the one American that stayed behind in Rwanda during the 1994 genocide by his own choice helped rescue orphans. His book is available on his website. The website's worldoutsidemyshoes.org. Also, documentaries can be viewed about his story. PBS has shared about Carl's story. Check it out at worldoutsidemyshoes.org. You said something powerful a moment ago. We can't judge people forever by their one worst moment. Man, when somebody does something so horrific to you in your plain sight, to your family, to people you love, it's like, how can I not define them by that? But it traps us in anger and bitterness. And that anger and bitterness is going to bleed into other relationships. The only way I think we can stop the harm and the control, the power that a perpetrator has over us is to get free of anger and bitterness. That's the basic definition of forgiveness, which I usually don't use the word forgiveness because it means so many different things to different people. But to get free from anger and bitterness, I think, well, first, we've got to experience incredible empathy and compassion. And that's a whole wonderful conversation in itself, including self-compassion. Once we have experienced that and we have that as a foundation to begin to define someone as something more than the one horrible thing they did, it takes incredible courage, but there's story after story in Rwanda of people who have found healing by having the opportunity to what I call have shared experiences, to start doing something together with the person. Okay, this will this will sound kind of out of the you know out of left field or something, but to build new neural pathways, Darren. There's it, it, there, this gives me so much hope when it comes to can people really change and that we can have experiences together that begin to rewire our brain and to see somebody as more than the one thing that has always, you know, defined them in the past. And personally, I was stuck. I, I ran into a perpetrator um, on a recent visit to Rwanda, and man, I was taken right back to 1994, and I was only seeing him as this 18-year-old kid who was killing and torturing people, whereas the lady he was standing next to called him an incredible valued family friend, doing things for her, she said, that my sons would have done if they were still alive, and he was the guy who had killed her sons. Ugh. So it's just it, it just boggles your mind. And I hesitate to even tell these stories in such a short little moment because these are stories that take years to, to become free from anger and bitterness or to rewire our brain does not happen overnight. Carl Wilkins, we're going to wrap up with him in just a few moments. And I want to ask you, Carl, what you're up to today and how you personally have healed because you experienced genocide in Rwanda firsthand as the only American that remained behind those three bloody months. Check him out on his website. It's worldoutsidemyshoes.org. He's got a book. He's been featured in documentaries by PBS and other documentaries. Worldoutsidemyshoes.org. You're listening to Spokane's Shine 104.9 have a special guest in studio with me from Spokane, but he was a development worker, humanitarian in the country of Rwanda when the genocide broke out back in 1994. 
and was the only American who chose to remain behind, putting his own life at danger, to try to help rescue others, people living in his own household, many orphans, and was successful in many of those efforts at saving lives. Carl Wilkins, your life was directly put in jeopardy at times during those three months when the Rwanda genocide was happening all around you. Can you share just briefly a little bit about those instances? There were times like when the back window of my car was shot out, you know, a bullet hole in the headrest. It doesn't, you know, get much closer. And yet you look at those things and you think it's nothing compared to what the people of Rwanda went through. I wasn't fearing for the life of my wife and my children. I wasn't watching my family members being killed in front of me. And yet trauma isn't a quantitative thing that you can kind of compare side by side mine with yours. Trauma is something that I've I've come to understand. I mean, I remember sitting down in front of the computer years ago, looking up PTSD and, and a checklist, and going, "Whoa, check, 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 check." My, oh my goodness, you know, and 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 it was that that was the beginning of getting me to go find help. As I was as I was going to say, trauma is is any time we experience helplessness, and I know that may be a, a oversimplification, but I think to enter into the conversation when we feel helpless. To get help, Darren, was really tough because there's so many, there's so many stigmas that are attached with getting help, getting professional help. And, you know, I'm working at a high school as a chaplain and supposed to have it all together. And and yet, man, I go walking with my dog slumped down against a tree and just be sobbing. The Iraq war was starting. It was triggering things in my mind. And I just can't say enough how important it was when I finally went and got professional help. I got tools that I could begin to sort through this chaos, this confusion, this helplessness in my mind. I got vocabulary. I had a safe place to begin to understand that. I started journaling, which was huge for me, journaling. And then I found that it is safe and it is important to talk with, with trusted friends about. That's my kind of three things, you know, professional counseling, journaling, and trusted friends. And now to travel around and share in schools. I mean, for years when I would share these stories, I get this knot in my stomach. And I said to my counselor one day here in the Spokane Valley, you know, I said to him, I, I think I'm re-traumatizing myself at times or perhaps secondary trauma for the students. And he led me through an exercise where I was learning that I can tell the story authentically without going back there. It's almost like the 63-year-old Carl is standing next to the 36-year-old Carl and we're telling the story together. But the 63-year-old Carl has tools, has an awareness of practicing of presence, mindfulness that can, can help me deal with that trauma, not have a knot in my stomach. I still might have some tears, but tears are cool. It's, it's the knot that we had to deal with. Carl Wilkins, again, Spokane resident, but humanitarian and the only American that stayed behind in Rwanda through the three months of the 1994 genocide sharing with me this evening on Shine 1049. Carl, so you, you hinted at it. What are you doing today? You travel around the country, you travel around the world sharing yeah. stories of what? Healing, of reconciliation? Well, it started out just sharing stories of the genocide. In 2004, this documentary came out on PBS Frontline called Ghost of Rwanda. And that's a two-hour tough, tough documentary to watch. And because I was there, I was one of the people in the documentary and teachers started saying, hey, they were using this documentary in their classroom. Will you come and talk to our kids and tell them the stories? And a lot of it was at the beginning about what happened, but always focusing on 
I mean, we've got to tell about the horrors, but I don't think stories of horror change us sustainably. I think it's stories of hope, it's stories of relationships, it's stories of courage, courage that's contagious. You get infected. I was infected by Rwandans, this contagious courage. We would share those stories. But then in recent years, especially with developments in America and globally, with division and polarization, we started looking more directly at Rwanda's restorative plan. How did they rebuild trust? Because we all know we're at a we're at an all-time low in terms of trust these days. So I, I, I'm super excited to talk in classrooms and in community groups, faith groups, business groups, about putting things back together, about uh, addressing division. WorldOutsideMyShoes.org WorldOutsideMyShoes.org He's got a book. What's your book called? I'm Not Leaving. And there's a little 40-minute film there on the website, too. I, you can actually go on YouTube and just search I'm Not Leaving full movie And if you want to learn more of the stories. Last question, Carl. How has all of this, seeing genocide in Rwanda firsthand, only American that stayed behind in the country that whole time to try to help, how has that impacted or changed your relationship with God? How do you even begin to explain what you saw and experienced firsthand with a loving God? Yeah, I, I love when students say, okay, you're a Christian and uh, and you believe in a God, you know, all powerful and all loving and genocide. And in a nutshell, I used to focus a lot more on the miracles of God as evidence for the existence and the power of God. Now I'm like, man, some of the greatest miracles of God are when somebody puts somebody else's interest ahead of their own. When somebody sacrifices for somebody else. I really think that God was present in the genocide, not so much evidence miraculously, although I'm sure there's a bunch of stuff happened we'll never know, but the biggest evidence to me was like those neighbor ladies standing in front of our gate saying, no, you can't go into our house. Those neighbor ladies stepping up for us. When we step up for somebody else, when we put somebody else in the center, that to me is the hand of God. And so I still have questions for God and 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 yet a kid just wrote a letter the other day. She says, you know, I'm not going to forget. You said that you're not going to throw out what you know about God because of the things you don't know. You're not going to throw out what you know about God because of the things you don't know. And I think that's that's really held me in good stead for a long time. I hang on. I know God loves me. I sometimes don't understand certain parts of that, but I but I know God loves me and I hang on to that. Carl Wilkins, what an honor to have him in studio with us this evening. If you'd like to learn more about his story, get the book, I'm Not Leaving. Check out his website, watch some of the documentaries. He's right here in Spokane, Washington, and his website is worldoutsidemyshoes.org. What a gift he is to our community as he not only serves and ministers here in town, but he travels around the U.S., travels around the world, sharing stories of healing and reconciliation after his experiences firsthand in Rwanda. His website, worldoutsidemyshoes.org. Thank you, Carl Wilkins. Thanks, Darren. It's been good to be with you. You're listening to Spokane's Shine 104.9 and 94.9 in Coeur d'Alene.